If you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. This morning, we're going to take a quick break from our series to do a one-off because I want us to talk about an important question uh, this morning that really is coming from where I've just been. Why is it that we go to Africa? Why is it that we go to Africa? So I think we may turn here to a strange place, uh, the Psalms, to begin catching a bit of that vision and understanding why it is that we're called to do things like this and why our church is so committed to missions and why I want you to join in on reaching the nations with the glory of the name of Jesus. So let's read Psalm 96 together, beginning in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, and tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. That it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you have been glorified not just by the words that we have said but with the heart that has said them and the mind that has focused upon them and I pray Lord that the spirit would do his work today in our hearts in our minds in our lives to begin to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus and to amaze us more and more with the glory of your name. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would use this humble pulpit to put fire in the bones of my people and to set their souls ablaze with a desire to spread your fame across the face of the earth, from the Chihaw Valley to the ends of the earth. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to birth in us a vision that is bigger than ourselves bigger than we can imagine and only sized by our view of who you are and what you have done. Lord, move among your people this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last Thursday, our mission team went to a group of refugees that the United Nations had placed in Swaziland. These were refugees primarily from the countries of Mozambique and Malawi and they were placed there by the United Nations because of civil wars that were happening in their nations. And so we get in, and, and we, we're already threadbare and worn out and, and exhausted, and we get in, and Jeffrey says, look, this is going to be a journey. And so we get in the car, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive. Now, I want to remind you about Swaziland. Until you came to Iron City, raise your hand if you knew that Swaziland even existed as a country. Nobody knows, okay? 
Swaziland is among the forgotten nations of the world. It's, it's a little bitty tiny country the size of Delaware, okay? N- nobody knows that, that it exists. So we can say safely they are forgotten people, right? So here we are among the Swazis who are a forgotten people, and we are driving and driving and driving, and it feels like we're never going to get there. And we finally turn off of the paved road, and, and by paved, I mean like paved, you know what I mean? <laughs> And we turn off the paved road, and we're on this dirt road, and we're driving through what just feels like the African bush, like the middle of nowhere. And in the middle of nowhere, we happen upon this village of mud huts. And there are all the people that are there, and they're gathered underneath uh, a shade tree. And there you can see the picture here is of the church which they worship. It is a, a, a tarp, and you can see the sunlight through the tarp. And what's remarkable when you think about it is that the Swazi people consider these refugees to be the forgotten people. That these are forgotten people living among a forgotten nation. That even the Swazis pity them as those that have been completely removed from the face of the earth in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of mankind. So we go there, and as we were worshiping and preaching, and we were administering medical care, I just the Lord brought to my mind what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Go to uh, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it felt like, Lord, we have literally found the ends of the earth. I didn't know this country existed, and most of the people in this country I didn't know existed are living, in, and they don't even know that these people exist. And so here we are. Lord, here we are living out what you have called for us to do. And it's a surreal experience. It's a surreal experience to watch children play that everybody else has forgotten. It's a surreal experience to see the needs of people that nobody else even remembers or knows exist. It's a surreal experience to, to worship with Christians that the world would just soon abandon. And it's a surreal experience that I think more people should have. And it's to that end that I want to answer the question this morning, why Africa? Why do we go to Africa? Don't we fly over a lot of lost people to get there? Aren't there a lot of needs right here where we live? Don't, should, shouldn't we just take the money from our trips and write a check and, and send it over there? All these questions that, that I've been asked. Perhaps you've mulled them over in your own mind and wondered, why is it that we do this? Why is it that we would leave and uproot ourselves and go at great personal risk and great personal cost and leave behind kids and leave behind family? Why would we do that? What, what is the purpose of us going to places like this? To get this vision, I want to go to the Psalms, which I think for most of us, when we think about missionary calls, we probably, most of us don't think about the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms. But the missionary zeal of the New Testament is founded in the theology of the Old Testament. You have to recognize this. God had told Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation that is a blessing to all nations, a, a promise that is ultimately going to be realized in the person of Christ and in a promise that is ultimately going to be enjoyed by the church of Christ among all the nations when the tribes and the tongue come together to bring glory to the name of Jesus. And so what we have in Psalm 96 is what we call a messianic psalm. 
It is a psalm that envisions the the messianic king that is going to come and to deliver the people of God and bring them into the messianic age, a kingdom that is more secure. So here is David writing about a king that is better than him, and he is writing about a kingdom that is going to be established that is more secure, more prosperous, more, more renowned than his own kingdom. And so he's looking at all that God is doing in his reign and all that God is doing in his life, and he's foreshadowing and foreseeing a time in which is going to be even greater, a time in which Christ is going to establish establish a new heaven and a new earth and the nations are going to be beckoned at his throne to bring glory to his name at a banquet in his honor that's why martin luther calls this a missionary hymn i love that i love that we need more missionary hymns in the lives of the church because we are a missionary people worshiping a missionary god and so it seems like a good place for us to go and to find this answer why africa why africa First reason I want you to see is because God is worthy. Because God is worthy. Zach and I, Zach, he used to be on staff here. Now he's the senior pastor of Lakeview Baptist Church in Oxford. We, we partnered together on, on this trip. And so Zach and I joked with Pastor Jeffrey, who's the indigenous pastor there in Swaziland, that we work with. Many of you have, have had the pr- privilege of meeting him. But we joked with him that nobody in Africa is tone deaf. Okay. Everybody in Africa loves to sing, and they sing beautifully, and their, their voices has, have just a, a natural harmony to them, that when they sing, they just harmonize in a way, and, and it's sometimes, they were singing in Saswati very often, and even though it wasn't a uh, language that I was familiar with or could understand, just the harmonization of their voices was just otherworldly, it was, it's, it's, it's stunning. And so we're sitting there, and we're in the conference, and I, one of the, the primary work that I did there was train pastors. And so we're there in the pastors' conference, and one of the things that, that took me back was just how different they are during the breaks. Okay, if you go to an American conference, nobody, none of the pastors can wait until there is a break. And when there is a break, you linger in the break. You talk about the sports, and you scroll on Facebook, and you figure out, and you answer all the problems that's happening at church, and you're answering emails, and you're doing all, all the things, Right? People drag back into the conference and often very, very late. But there, here in Swaziland, there are dozens of pastors, many of whom, and I'm going to talk about this more, many of whom have, have come at great personal expense, many of whom are in very poor health. And they're in the breaks. They're not scrolling Facebook. They're not talking about the weekend's sporting event. They're not trying to answer email. They're singing. They're singing. As long as the break will go, as long as there are people that are in there, they're, they're singing. And there's no instrumentation, and there's no speaker system, and there's no, there's no words on the screen. They're just singing, and they're singing, and they're singing. And when one song ends, somebody else in the corner will sing. And when that song ends, another person will lead. And they'll just sing over and over. And I would find myself, I would find myself as they were singing, just, just closing my eyes, sometimes in prayer, but in other times, just envisioning, believing, this is the vision of what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth when all the voices of every tribe and every tongue and their native tongue come together to sing a new song to the glory of Jesus' name. And that's a vision from Psalm 96. It's a vision for Psalm 96 and it's a vision that helps us to understand why it is that we go. Do you know why we go? Because we worship the Lord. We go because worship fuels missions. 
Worship fuels missions. David says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation. There, three different times, right out of the gate. He's saying, sing, sing, sing. He's talking about the worship of the people of God in the era of the Messiah. When the times have come together as a culmination of his reign here in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's saying, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be singing. And why are we going to be singing? Because we're amazed at who God is. That what David is envisioning is David is envisioning the people of God who are totally enraptured by the person of God, by the works of God, by the manifold splendors of God. That they are, they are totally enraptured and caught up with the person and, and what God has done and who God is and how God has revealed himself. And they're so caught up and they're all caught up in it at the same time and to the same degree so that now with a collective voice they come together and their, their mind, their collective mind is captivated and their collective soul is exhilarated so that their, their, their collective voice is now filled with exaltation. In fact, he goes on, he says, I love that he says, sing to the Lord, uh, sing to the Lord a new song. We just talked about the new mercies of God, didn't we? Just a, just a few weeks ago before I left. And we talked about how the Lord doesn't want us living on leftover, uh, leftover stale mercy. But so often our faithful stale, doesn't it? Our, our faith feels ordinary, it feels plain, it, it may feel dull, we may become bored. We, we hear these truths about God, but they, they once enlivened us, but now they just fall onto hard soil. And we've become used to this amazing story of the Son of God coming to the earth and saving us and dying. We, we, we've become accustomed to it, we've become so, so, so bored with it. That's a hard word to use, isn't it? But it's true. David says in the new heavens and the new earth, it is not going to be like that. That every single day, you are going to wake up. And when you wake up, you're going to wake up with fresh amazement and fresh passion and fresh zeal. And you're going to realize in a way that you didn't realize the day before that or the day before that, that God is even better than you thought he was. And God has done even more than you realized he's done. And God is even more beautiful than you realized he was beautiful. That every single day you're going to wake up and your heart is going to be totally caught up and enraptured by just who God is. You remember when you were young and you were a kid and everything amazed you? Remember how much happier you were? How much less bored you were? How, how zealous you were to grow up because you wanted to learn more things and see more things and have more curiosity satisfied that, that you had this insatiable desire to just realize and, and conquer new things and see new things? That is a glimpse into the way the new heavens and the new earth are going to be. There is no boredom there because God is there. There is, no, there is no dullness there because every single day you're going to wake up with the joy and the happiness of a fresh discovery that is even greater than the day before. And so every single day, every single day, you will sing praises to the Lord. I don't even know if there's talking in the new heavens and the new earth. I think everybody is singing because they're so enraptured by who God is that they have a new song on their tongue every single day. That the new heavens and the new earth is characterized by amazement in God. And it is a precursor of what will be. And it is a description of what ought to be in our hearts right now. We have found the Son of God. 
He has died in our place. He has been resurrected from the dead. Death's sting has been taken away. Death's penalty has been paid in full. Sin and the power of sin has been broken from our lives. We now walk in newness of life with him forever. How are we not amazed, church? How are we not amazed? And you see, this is the starting line for missions. Amazement in God is the starting line of missions. Amazement in God is the fuel for missions. And savoring the person of God, and savoring the works of God, and savoring the knowledge of God is what sustains us in missions. See, I am convinced that a church's missionary fervor will never exceed her singing. Three times we're told to sing, to sing, to sing. We're, t- we're told in verse 7, beginning of verse 7, to ascribe. And, and how do we ascribe the worth of something? We say it in the most expressive way that we can, don't we? Christians are singing people, you understand? We are singing people because some things are just too good, too glorious, too amazing to merely say them. We have to sing them. We have to shout them. We have to dance in their presence because we have an awareness that this is just more than God is good. Jesus is raised. Our grace is amazing. No, 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 no. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We have to sing it. What is singing? Singing is the expression of affection. Singing is the overflow of passion. Now let me ask you a different question. What is missions? It's the same thing. Missions is the expression of affection. It's the overflow of passion. And if our hearts grow cold and our passion begins to wane and our faith becomes dull and then our, our, our minds aren't captivated and our hearts aren't exhilarated, then our missionary zeal will wane. heart that is captivated by the glories of God, the heart that is amazed by the person of God, the heart that is savoring the knowledge of God, the heart that wakes up to fresh mercy and the realization of how good that mercy has been to them day in and day out is a heart that wants to make God's glory known among the nations, wants to shout from every rooftop who God is and what God has done. One of the things that the Lord has revealed to me on the trip was that my heart had grown cold to the Swazi people. My heart had grown cold to the people of Africa. My heart had grown cold to the mission. But as I looked them in the eye, as I looked them in the eye, as I heard them sing, as I saw the work ethic of the pastors there, as I saw the passion of the church there, as I drove to the refugee camp, where it was the forgotten place among the forgotten people, the Lord revealed to me, Cody, your heart has grown cold for them because in ways you weren't aware and in ways you didn't see, your heart has grown cold for my glory. What about your heart? See, one of the reasons that we go to Africa is it's not just about what God does through you. It's about what God does in you. That God gives you a bit of his heart the more that you see his heart. 
that the more you see his people, and the more you see what he is doing, and the more you see how he's at work, and the more you see the way he's building his church, and the more that you get to participate in that, and no, and no, it was not me, and I could not have done it, but he is doing it, and has done it, and will do it. The more you become enraptured, like David says, with his manifold glories and beauties. But worship doesn't just fuel missions. Worship aims missions. That it starts with my amazement in God, but then it spreads to my desire to have others amazed in God. See what he says? Verse 7. And, and, and there's two stanzas to uh, Psalm 96. You can think of a poem with two stanzas, and so they parallel. And that, so, so, so he says it, and then he says it again, and so he helps clarify it, and that's what he's doing. So verses 1 and 2 are then clarified by verses 7, 8, and 9. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him. And I love this word ascribe. What does it mean to ascribe? It means to give someone the glory that is due his own name. It means to give to somebody what they are worth, to assign to them publicly in the face of all men what that person is actually worth. We are not giving to God something that he needs. We are giving to God something that he already has. We are declaring it across the face of the earth who God is. We are giving him a glory that is already due his name. It is his own glory. And we are making it known. We are getting to be the messengers of the splendor of this king. But who is it that it's assigned to? Now this is in the Old Testament, but he's talking to more than Israel here, isn't he? He's talking to more than just the house of David. He's talking to more than just the people of Judah. In fact, I think we come to the New Testament. He's talking here more than, than, than to just the New Testament church. He says, families of the peoples. You ever notice, like, even in our mission statement as a church, to make maturing and multiplying disciples of all peoples to the ends of the earth, peoples, nations, these, these things are plural, right? We, we don't think of peoples as a normal way of talking. What is he talking about? That you have these individual people groups among the face of the earth, right? You have all these different tribes and all these different kings and all these different nations. And so you have peoples that are made up of people. And he says, it's not just the job of Israel to bring glory to my name. It is the responsibility and the command upon every family of every people over the face of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, the glory to his name. Bring an offering. Worship the Lord. Who? Who should worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness? Who should tremble before him? All the earth. This is given to every people. That all the people of the earth are to be filled with an amazement in God. That is expressed through affection for God. And an overflow of passion toward God. That all the nations are meant to be singing this new song to the Lord. So, so it begins, the starting line is amazement in me. But the actual goal is to spread that amazement over the face of the earth so that every people and every tribe and every tongue of every nation brings glory and ascribes to the Lord and worships the Lord in the new song that has been given to us through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. I love the way that John Piper puts this. John Piper says that, that missions is not the goal of the church. That, that gets your attention, doesn't it? Missions is not the goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is. 
there is going to come a time when the Lord Jesus returns and we will no longer do missions. But you know what we will do? We will worship. We will worship. We will be down at his feet. We will be enraptured by his glory. We will be overtaken by his goodness. We will be astonished by his grace and by his mercy. We will wake up to it every day and we will worship him. Why does missions exist then? Missions exist, Piper says, because worship doesn't. Because there are peoples around the world who don't yet know the name of Jesus. And if they know the name of Jesus, they don't know it in the true faith, passed down once for all to the apostles, to the saints. So the responsibility that has now been given to the church is to go and to help all of the nations to see that God is glorious, that Jesus is raised, that there is hope for their name, to spread the name of Jesus, that Jesus might amaze them, might save them, that they might be filled with worship toward him. I wonder in your heart, are you amazed? I wonder in your heart, are you amazed? I wonder in your heart right now if it has grown cold to the Lord. I wonder if in your heart you have a vision of God's glory that wants to spread. I wonder if in your heart you are stirred up in your affections for God so that it overflows in singing. I wonder if in your heart right now you are stirred up with passion for the Lord that overflows through daily living, through the desire to get close to Him in His Word and gather to Him with His church. I wonder if right now stirred up in you is a vision for the nations that all of the nations might realize the Psalm 96 vision that they would ascribe the Lord Jesus His worth because let me tell you church, he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy of my praise, and he is worthy of your praise, and he is worthy of the praise of the heathen. He is worthy of the praise of the forgotten. He is worthy of the praise of the prosperous. He is worthy of the praise of the, of the powerful. He is worthy of the praise of the impoverished. He is worthy of the praise of the sick. He is worthy of the praise of the animus. He is worthy of the praise of the Buddhist. He is worthy of the praise of the Chinese. He is worthy of the praise of every corner of the earth, every corner of this community, because he has been risen and he is returning he is worthy why do we go to Africa because God is that worthy because he is that worthy there's another reason God is worthy and we are commanded God is worthy and we are commanded I imagine being there after the resurrection of Jesus. All of his disciples are there and they're gathered around. Most of them know that they scattered like cowards when Jesus was crucified. Some of them took him off the cross and prepared his body. Some of them gave their tombs and helped him be buried. They know the man died. They know that they participated in that death. They know they've abandoned him in that death. And here he is, in his resurrection glory, standing in their presence and talking to them. Talking to them. He has a captive audience, don't you think? He has a captive audience. That here are those that didn't believe. They had, a, they had run, but now he's in their presence and they have to believe. Thomas putting his hands inside of the wounds that are caused by the nails and putting his hand in the hole in his side where the spear had been thrust. And having this captive audience, what does Jesus do? 
He leaves them with a command before he ascends to the right hand of his Father. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it was an experience that transformed the apostles from cowards into martyrs. It was not their nature, you understand? But do you know what they did? They heard that command of Jesus and they experienced the resurrection of Jesus. And over the entirety of the known world, they would go and they would die to make known the message that Jesus had come back to life. Peter would be martyred in Rome. Andrew would be martyred in Greece. John would be martyred on the island of Patmos. James the Just would be pushed off the roof of the temple to his death there in Jerusalem. Thomas would die as a martyr in India. Matthew would die as a martyr in Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot and Judas would, uh, Judas, uh, uh, the other Judas, I can't remember his name, would go and they would be both martyred in, Judas Thaddeus, would be martyred in Lebanon. And you know what's going to have to happen in our hearts if we're going to follow in that apostolic tradition? We're going to have to recognize that we've been commanded too. We're going to have to recognize that Jesus' resurrection has created a transformation in us and has brought with it a responsibility to us to go and make disciples of all nations, to be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. We see, we see the shadows of that command all the way back in the Old Testament here in Psalm 96. That we are commanded to tell what God has done. We are commanded to tell what God has done. Look at there in verse 2. It says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, do what? Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. Among whom? Among the nations. His marvelous works among whom? All the peoples. That here in Jesus' New Testament Great Commission, we find his roots, his theological epicenter, all the way back in Old Testament Israel. That this has always been God's plan. This has always been God's command to his people. That God intends for his people to spread the name. But what are we supposed to tell them? What are we supposed to tell them? What are we supposed to tell them that is going to make them leave behind all of their prosperity? What are we supposed to tell them that's going to make them abandon the gods of their heritage? What are we supposed to tell them that is going to make them ignore what Hollywood is saying and ignore what uh, their own appetites? What are we supposed to tell? We're supposed to tell them what God has done. Tell of his salvation. Declare his glory. His marvelous works. Works there can be wonder. Your Bible translation may actually say that. It can mean deeds. It means to tell others about how you have personally experienced the goodness and the kindness of God. Has God been good to you? Has God been good to you? Do you have to answer for your sins? Do you have the bare minimum that you need for life or do you have excess? When you look around at the smiles on the faces of your children, has God been good to you? You may go every day to a job that you're not super happy with, but every week does the direct deposit hit and you have exactly what you, has God been good to you? 
Are you able to gather together on a Sunday morning with hundreds of people in a church that loves you and preaches the gospel to love one another and receive the gospel and sing praises the glory and glory to, to Jesus in, in a free country? Are you able to do that? Has God been good to you? Are you going to get into, we, we have millions of dollars worth of vehicles in our, in our parking lot right now, maybe in the field, maybe the parking lot's a stretch, but millions of dollars of vehicles that are out in, on our property right now that we all own. God has been good to us, hasn't he? Oh, we have to declare it, church. Oh, I, I, some of you have told me how God has answered your prayers. We have to tell of his wondrous works. We have to tell of the wonder that he has done in our lives. We have to proclaim the goodness that we have experienced. What we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that when we understand what God has commanded in light of what God has done, it becomes less of a command and more of a privilege. We have been endued with great opportunity from God. Jesus says it like this, to whom much is given, much is required. Have you been given much? Have you been given much? When we think of all the reasons that we don't go and all the reasons that we don't share and all the reasons that we don't give and all the reasons that we don't want to go on a long flight like that and all the reasons that we don't want to go, we ought to stop for just a second and think, God, God, who cares what I want to do? You have been so good to me. You have been so good to me. Perhaps I can get over myself. Oh, God has been good to us, hasn't he, church? I was gathered there. I told you that I was doing pastor training. But many of those pastors came at great personal cost. One came all the way from Mozambique, another country. Uh, there was another that was there, and they were in the midst of heart failure, we discovered through our medical opportunities. Another was there with stage four cancer and no hope of treatment because there's no treatments available to him in the entire country. And there they are. And they're hanging on every word of some redneck rabbit town preacher to come and tell them how they can study the Bible more effectively. Many of them, their entire ministry consists of one sermon by one pastor. Some of them don't even have Bibles. They have one pastor by one one sermon by one pastor, and they built their entire ministry. And that sermon may or may not be faithful. That sermon may or may not be prosperity gospel. It's just, it's all that they have. It's the entirety of the faith that they have come to realize. And so when they hear of an opportunity to hear and, and how you can study the word and know the full story of Jesus and proclaim Jesus from the scriptures yourself, they are, they are insatiable. And I remember sitting there and thinking, how many seminary assignments have I just begrudgingly done what I needed to do and turned it in? How many Bible studies in my life have I sleepishly just sat through and anticipated when the end would be? Brothers and sisters, we've been given so much. The burden of proof does not rest upon the question of why we should go. In light of the command and the gifts that we've been given, the burden of proof lies upon why we shouldn't go. We should go and we should tell what God has done and we should go and tell what God will do. He says in the, in the parallel verse there in verse 10, it says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. What will he do? He will 
judge the peoples with equity. That the Lord is coming and the Lord is going to bring a judgment among the people. Jesus talks about this. That when the messianic age is fully consummated, there's going to be a separation of the goats from the sheep. And only the sheep will be able to enjoy the fullness of what he is offering here in the Psalm 96 vision. Where the nations are glad and proclaiming his glories and walking in the face of who God is. And walking in fresh amazement. The rest will be banished to eternal torment. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? This is what Jesus has said. See, I think that there is a naive universalism that's worked its way into the life of the church and a naive universalism perhaps that has worked its way into our church. We have this line of thinking to think, well, well, if they don't hear, I'm sure God will make a way for them to come in. If they don't know the good news, surely God will make a way for them to come in. Except, what did Paul say in Romans chapter 1 verse 20? I have it there at the bottom of your screen. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So what? They are without excuse. Listen, if the nations are saved by not hearing about Jesus then hearing the good news about Jesus is the worst news in the world because it makes them accountable. But the gospel is good news for all peoples in all places at all times because there is no path to heaven except through the gateway of the cross of Jesus Christ. And every person on the face of the earth is going to be answering that question. What did you do with the Son of God? There, the fact that missionaries never came is not an excuse. The fact that the Bible never came is not an excuse. The fact they didn't understand the gospel is not an excuse. They are without excuse. And so our excuses of why we didn't go, and our excuses of why we didn't share, and our excuses of why we didn't tell will only stand as the context for their own condemnation. Brothers and sisters, the judgment is coming. And one day, whether they are mighty or they are small, whether they are great or they are impoverished, they will fall on their faces and declare that Jesus is Lord. Our responsibility is to go to every person in every place that is within our means with the great responsibility that we have been given through the great gifts that we have been given as a privilege to tell them, to tell them they can bow now. They can bow today. They can know him today so that on that day the judgment is a joy and the judgment is a privilege and the judgment is the threshold to a joyous eternity. Do you believe in the judgment? That's why we go to Africa. That's why we go to Chiha Valley. That's why we go to the prisons. That's why we go to Salt Lake City. That's why we go to the detention center. That's why we go. That's why we give. And finally, what you see, the kingdom is coming. That's why we go. One of the things that Psalm 96 is doing is it's inviting us to use our spiritual imaginations in some sense to let our minds drift and wander into that day in which Jesus returns and what it will be like. It's, it's allowing us, in other words, to envision what the messianic kingdom will actually be. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? One day, all of our hospitals and all of our funeral homes are here to be changed into banquet halls and to community centers where we gather together to party. 
No funerals, just parties. One day, we're going to turn our children. We're going to let them go. Uh, Isaiah says that in the Messianic kingdom, Isaiah chapter 11, that the kids will play by the adder's hole. In other words, they'll be able to pick up the cobra and find it as a pet. That we'll turn our children out and we won't worry that somebody's going to pick them up. And we won't worry that they're going to find the wrong influence. And we won't worry that they might not come home. We'll turn them out. And not only will we not worry, we'll be excited to hear about what fresh new discovery they had discovered on that given day. All the virtual worlds that we use right now to escape to. To get away from reality. To lose our minds. It's going to be transformed into actual reality where there is serenity and tranquility as the norm. The sun that causes melanoma where we live is going to be fully displaced, Revelation says, by the person of God, the light of God, which will never set. His warmth will fall on our faces forever, illuminating our way and bringing joy to our lives and fruitfulness to our crops. There will be no wars or rumors of wars. There will be no threats or ambulances chasing us by. There will be no enmity between you and your family, no enmity between you and your neighbor. Can you imagine? That's what David is envisioning when he lands it in verse 11. He says, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That that the Lord is coming and when the Lord comes, all of these dreams, all of these, these, these aspirations, all of these imaginations will become reality and even a greater degree. So that gladness and not pain, gladness and not suffering, gladness and not tears, gladness and not insomnia, gladness and not mental disorder will spread over the face of the earth. Gladness, the heavens will be declaring, the trees will be singing, the fields will be declaring and exulting, the seas will be proclaiming that God is good and the world is at rest. It's not how we live today, is it? You send your kids to school where little boys aren't sure if they're little boys and little girls aren't sure if they're little girls. You turn on the news every day, not just to war, but to human atrocity. Human atrocity where children are being beheaded and burned alive. You look at the political upheaval, not just in the darkest of places, but right here where we live. And you think, what kind of world am I leaving my children? What kind of world am I leaving my grandchildren? It's easy to be overcome by anxiety. It's easy to be overcome by just despair over what you see. Can I ask you, child of God, what do you do to overcome the despair in your own heart? What do you do to overcome that sense of of fragility and threat that seems to hang over you at all times? What do you do when you think about your children? What do you do? Here's what I bet you do. You remind yourself that God is sovereign, don't you? You remind yourself that God is in control even though it feels like everything is spiraling out of control, don't you? 
You remind yourself that Jesus has come and has been raised from the dead and that he's going to come back again and that all of these wars are going to be extinguished and all of our tears are going to be dry. You remind yourself of these things, don't you? That what you do, what you do, is you find these corners of darkness in your life and you take the good news of the gospel and you use it as a light to shine it in there to get rid of the fear, don't you? That the darkest corners of our life require the brightest light that we've been given in the gospel, don't they? That's the only way that we can make it. Then it ought to be easy for us to see why the darkest corners of the earth in the darkest countries with the greatest need have the deepest need for the brightness of the gospel. That we have to take the greatest hope to the greatest despair. That's why we go to Africa, y'all. That's why we go to Africa. One of the days, the, the Thursday, we went and we ministered in a prison. It was a medium and a maximum security prison there in Swaziland. They're all kind of lumped together, and we preached to them. And I had even shared with Jeffrey. Jeffrey had asked me about doing different things for the prisoners. I said, Jeffrey, it's, when there are so many orphans, it's going to be really hard for me to get a lot of, of empathy for the prisoners. And I, and I realized while I was there, I had not understood the situation. So as you go in the prison, there's the, it's a sobering experience to walk into a maximum security third world co- prison, by the way. They have what are like Polaroid pictures of all the inmates on the wall. And we weren't allowed to take pictures. I would have loved to have shown you a picture of that. And on those Polaroid pictures written in Sharpie is the charge that's against that person. Well, what I began to notice on several of those Polaroid pictures of men that are in the maximum security prison there with serial killers legitimate serial killers, is it would say King's Pleasure on it. King's Pleasure, King's Pleasure, King's Pleasure. While we were in the prison, Lille, who is Jeffrey's wife, that's the first time that she had went with Jeffrey to the prison to do ministry. Wives aren't accepted in many of the places there in the way that they're accepted here in the United States, but she had gotten to go with us. And while she was there, she had gotten to meet her brother, who I did not know was in prison. He had been in there for six years. It was the first time that she had seen her brother in six years. So we get out, we get out of the prison, and we're in the van. I said, Jeffrey, I have a question I want to ask you. I'm curious. I noticed the the Polaroids on the wall coming out of the prison, and I noticed on several of them it says King's Pleasure. What does that mean? Jeffrey says that means that they're being held without a charge, without a jury, without a judgment, for an indefinite period of time because the king doesn't like them. And he says, now that you ask that, that's why Lele's brother's in here. Lele's brother's been in here for six years, has not seen his family, has not seen his children, has not seen anyone because the king was jealous of his business. He has no idea when he's going to get out, no idea if he'll ever get out, and the warden who we met with face-to-face told us most of the men would die in the prison. It's a place of darkness. Let me tell you some more about Swaziland. The United States State Department did a, a survey in 2022. They acknowledged that Swaziland is one of the places remaining on the earth that likely still has human sacrifice and ritual killings. It is the highest HIV infection rate per capita of any nation on earth. The average life expectancy for an adult man in Swaziland is 45 years old. They have one cardiologist in the entire nation. They have no access to medical care. 
no access to resources. Most families live on less than $1,500 per year. It's a place of deep despair. Because of the AIDS epidemic, orphans are, are multiplying at a near exponential rate. And there is no government catch net to provide any care for them. It's a place of darkness, y'all. And do you know what our responsibility is now that we know it? To take the light of hope into the place of despair. The same one that helps us cope with the realities of our lives, the same one that helps shine into the corners of darkness in our souls, now that we have experienced the goodness of God, now that we are amazed at the glories of God, we have to go. Because to whom much is given, much is required. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, there are two categories of Great Commission Christian, two categories only. It assumes that you're in one of these categories. Category one is the goers. It's the goers. It's people like Paul and Timothy and Titus and Silas and Barnabas and the apostles. They, they go to the far reaches of the earth to make sure that, that the glory of Jesus' name has been made known to, to spread the amazement of God over the face of the earth. The second category is the senders. The church of Antioch, the church of Philippi. You have to either be a goer or you have to be a sender if you're going to honor the command of the Lord. But the question that I have for us at Iron City, as we have so much and we have been given so bountifully and we worship so freely and we make so much, is why can't we be both? Why can't we be both? The burden of proof is not why should we go. The burden of proof is why should we not go. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.